Hi there. You're listening to the Paralegals on Fire podcast show, where you'll be getting tips and actionable strategies that you can use right now to fast track your paralegal career. I'm your host, Ann Pearson, former paralegal and paralegal manager who left big law in the concrete jungle to start my own company, the Paralegal Bootcamp, where we give online courses that help paralegals make more money, increase their job security, and cut out the learning curve. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, hello, and welcome. So in this episode of the Paralegals on Fire show, I'm going to do something a little bit different. In fact, this format might be something that we do once a month, or at least on somewhat of a regular basis. So today I'm going to do a little Q&A. But I want to make sure if you're listening to these Q&A podcast episodes that you get the most out of it. So we're going to stick to just one basic topic for each of these Q&As. And so then you'll know if this is a topic that interests you and you don't have to listen to the whole thing and wait till you get to a question that might be relatable to you. So I asked our readers and our social media followers, you know, what burning questions they had about billable hours and that they could ask anonymously. So I'm choosing billable hours first because we're coming up fast to the end of the year. And you probably know by now whether or not you might hit that year-end billable hour target or not. And I'll tell you, one of the most rewarding things to me is after someone goes through our billable hour boot camp and sends me a message that they no longer stress about billable hours. That's just one thing that a paralegal shouldn't have to stress about. So let's jump right into these questions. Our first question was, I get asked not to record time spent on a particular project, usually asked by the same attorney. Then it looks like I build fewer hours than I actually did. What can I do about this? Okay. All right. So this person is being asked not to record time that she is spending working on a project, time that is billable, but she's being asked not to record it. Good question. So there are a couple of things that you can do. First, maybe the lawyer doesn't even know that you have a billable hour requirement. I know we all think that they must know this, but you would be surprised how many lawyers, especially young associates, that don't realize paralegals in the firm also have a billable hour goal that they have to meet. So I'd start by first finding out the answer to that question. Do they even know that you have a billable hour requirement? A way that you can do that, and it might give you a way to start to address that problem, is to respond something like this when they tell you not to record that billable time. You could say, ouch, that's going to hurt my billables for the day. In addition to looking bad to XYZ, whoever your manager, HR person is, supervisor, in addition to looking bad to Mr. XYZ, it's going to ding me at the end of the year because my bonus and raise depends on me having a certain number of billable hours. Are you sure that I can't bill for this? If they respond that you can't bill for it because it's non-billable work or it's work that the client won't pay for, that type of work, then you could respond something like, oh, okay, that makes it easier. I'll just ask a secretary or another non-billable person to help out on it and I'll oversee their work so that I don't get dinged as bad for the billables. Now, if it is truly billable work that you're being asked to do and not put time down for, 
then that's really an even bigger problem. But it's still a similar response. They have to know that what they're asking you to do will affect your bottom line. It's going to affect your wallet at the end of the year. You could add to your response maybe the suggestion that you at least enter the billable time into the timekeeping system and let the billing partner write it off. Billing partners don't usually like that, though. And that's why it's an even bigger problem. First, if there are you and maybe several others throughout the firm who are doing this, working on billable projects that you never enter your time for, then management will never know that there's a problem either with what was budgeted for that client or how the client's files are being staffed and managed. All they know is you're short on billable hours for the year. That's it. You're short on billable hours. You don't get a bonus. Sorry. The second reason that it's an even bigger problem is that if you never enter the billable time into the system, then it's as if you never did the work. I have a great story as an example of why it's such a bad thing. If the firm was ever sued for malpractice for, say, not doing enough work to diligently defend that client, true story, not one of the firms I worked for, they weren't sued, but we were actually representing a firm who was being sued. And when that happens, the easiest way to defend what was done is by pulling up the Bill Blower reports that are essentially like a chronology, a record of everything the firm did to represent that client. But wait, half the time you spent on it isn't even in there because you didn't enter it into the system. It's like the tree that falls in the forest and no one hears it. Did you actually ever even do the work? Okay, our next question. I worked on a project that my attorney said they only had three hours in the budget for, and it took almost six hours. She wrote off all the extra time. What can I do about stuff like this? Another good question. Well, I'd like to start by giving them a better idea up front of how long the project might take. For example, if you're working on a bunch of witness notebooks, let's say you've got 20 witnesses, and after you finish the first two notebooks, you can estimate that each one takes an average of, let's say, three hours from start to finish. One of them took four hours, the other one took two hours. So you can assume that half the remaining ones might be as complex as the four-hour one and the other half not as complex. So go to that attorney and let her know that Based on what you've done so far, you estimate that this project will take X hours to complete, right? You've completed two of those 20 notebooks. You've got 18 left, averaging three hours a notebook. And so, and that's how you tell this person that. This is how I calculated it. This is, in my estimate, how long the project's going to take. And then ask if that's what she had in mind for the project budget. Another thing that I might suggest is if you're told in advance that this project is only budgeted for, let's say, three hours, when you get to the one and a half hour mark or the two hour mark, and you realize you're not even half done with the project, then go to the attorney and let them know the status and how much longer you anticipate the project taking for you to complete. That's where you'd want those metrics to be able to estimate. Let's say in this example, you've completed half those notebooks and it's taking you two hours. I know it might be tempting to think to yourself, and we all do it. We're all guilty of this. You think to yourself, well, I'll just work harder to try to finish it within that three-hour time frame. I'll work faster. I'll work harder. 
and I'll be able to get it done in three hours, or maybe it'll be three hours and 15 minutes. I'd be really careful with that mindset because the only statistics you have so far is that half the project has taken you two hours. Why would you think you'd be able to finish the other half of the project in half that amount of time? Luck? Cutting corners? It's probably not going to happen unless you cut corners, which then puts you in a position where you might make mistakes because you don't have enough time to do a quality control check before those notebooks go out the door. Now, there is another angle to this question as well. Let's assume you're not told in advance what the budget is, you know, which is what the question originally was, but I wanted to give another possible answer. Let's say you're not told in advance what that budget is, and you find out afterwards that the attorney thought it should have been done in less time. Whenever there are write-offs, like if it's after the fact, You have to ask yourself, is the attorney writing off that time because of the time entry itself, the way the time entry is drafted? Maybe it doesn't convey the real value of the work that you did. So ask yourself, could I do a better job describing what it is that I did so that they don't write off so much of that time? All right. Very good question. Thank you for that. Okay, our next question comes in from, okay, West Coast person, um, anonymous, of course. Let's see. Sometimes it's not clear whether or not I should bill for some of the things that I do on a regular basis. Is there a list somewhere out there for new paralegals to use that lists out things that are typically billable versus non-billable? Good question. And no, there is no list. I'm sorry. Um, that would be a good list to have, but it would also be a bad list to have because there is no definitive answer. Now, except that maybe inside the billing guidelines, there's a list which I would highly recommend that you ask to see. It surprises me every day how the client's billing guidelines get uploaded to a file somewhere, and the only person who ever reads them is the billing partner. So first and foremost, look to the client billing guidelines and see what they say, what what they will pay for, and what they won't pay for. They usually put it right in there. Now, most clients don't put out official billing guidelines, especially if they're a smaller company or you're representing an individual. If you're in the insurance defense area or the client is a big corporation, they most likely have billing guidelines. All right, so he's not clear on whether or not he should bill for some of the work that he's doing. I think the best way to answer that is something that I do in our Bill Blower Bootcamp course. It's to ask yourself a few questions, five questions, and have a yes answer to at least more than one of these, preferably all of them. The more yeses that you have, the higher the likelihood that it's billable. Now, I want to caution before I give you this list of questions. Really, the most important question is the first one. Will the client pay for it? Because if the client has said they'll pay for it, then really the only other questions are the irrelevant ones, right? Because if the client says, I'll pay for it. um, Well, so here's an example. In most cases, a client won't pay for a paralegal to draft a notice of deposition anymore. And that's because in most cases, not all, but in most cases, it's a plug and play form that a secretary should be able to do pretty easily. There's forms online on your system. All they have to do is put in the deponent's name, the deposition date, the court reporter name, et cetera. 
just about every law firm in existence has a template for one for a deposition notice. So those are so easy and the clients know this. Now, back in the 90s, we used to be able to bill clients all the time for drafting deposition notices, not anymore. But let's say your client does actually pay a point one to draft a deposition notice. Okay, then it's billable. Even if you answer no to the remaining questions that I'm going to have you ask, then it's still billable. You would bill for it. All right, so that's the first question. Will the client pay for it? Second, did the attorney ask me to do it? So back in the 70s, 80s, heck, even well into the 90s, there were still some attorneys out there that didn't know exactly what to give the paralegal and what to give the secretary. That's because the paralegal profession was still pretty new, at least officially. But nowadays, attorneys in your firm know if they ask a paralegal to do something, the paralegal's going to bill for it. Every single thing? No, but close to it. Does the attorney have to ask you to do it in order for it to be billable? No. That's not what this list of questions is for. You only need to use this list of questions if it's something that you're just not sure. Is it billable or not? All right, so that was number two. Did the attorney ask me to do it? Number three is, does it move the case, the project, or transaction forward? So a good example that I always like to use for this is filing an organization, just general organizing, let's say. I'm not talking about organizing the expert's notes in chronological order so that they can be summarized or something, or organizing deposition exhibits. What I'm talking about is just general organization of the file. Even though it's working on the client's files, it's not moving things forward. It's helping you find things easier, but it's not moving things forward. So the next question you would ask yourself is, Is it something the attorney would do if there were no paralegal there to do it? Now, where some people get tripped up here is they include the secretary in this equation. So forget about the secretary in the equation. This is just you and the attorney. If you weren't there, would the attorney do it? Here's an example of what I mean. So there's a deposition tomorrow. Would the attorney find and put together deposition exhibits for that deposition tomorrow? You bet they would if the deposition was coming up tomorrow and they didn't have their exhibits ready. Now compare that to organizing the file. If you weren't there, would the attorney be organizing the file? Probably not. All right, so that was question number four. Is it something the attorney would do if there was no paralegal to do it? And the last one, is it substantive in nature? In other words, is it something that provides a benefit? to the client particularly, right? That's who has to benefit from it, but a benefit to the case, to the transaction, to the client. Let's go back to organizing the file as our example. That doesn't benefit the client. It benefits you so that you can find things more easily. Now you might say, well, then if things weren't organized and it takes me longer to find something, the client ends up paying more money in the long run for me taking more time to find something. Not in today's world, because the clients are not going to pay for three hours to do something that they know only takes an hour and a half. They just won't. Yes, you might be able to get away with it for a few times, but that client isn't going to be sticking around for long if they're being billed for twice as much. There is an expectation that some of what you do 
is going to be not you personally, but some of what the firm does in representing the client is part of its overhead. You know, the client shouldn't have to pay for you putting file folder labels on on their files, you know. All right, I hope that helps you the next time that you're trying to figure out is it billable or is it administrative, non-billable? All right, moving on to our next question. Um, this one's cute. I see lots of articles out there about the death of the billable hour, and I secretly hope it happens with an exclamation point. Do you see it happening anytime soon? No, I don't. Look, I remember when I had the bill hours and hoped that that would happen too. I get it. They were still talking about it then. I mean, they've been talking about this, the death of the billable hour for at least the last 15 years, and it hasn't happened yet. Yes, some firms have alternative fee arrangements with clients. However, even with those, the firm still has to track how many billable hours are spent supporting that client's files. Otherwise, they won't have any way of knowing whether or not they're actually making money with that alternative fee arrangement. So the answer to that question is no, I'm sorry. Not probably in our lifetime. All right, the next question. My firm's billable hour goal is 1,600 hours per year, which is around 135 hours per month. And then they put in parentheses 133.333 to be exact. So around 135 a month. I hit that target number most months, but then in months like November and December or July, when I take a long vacation, I'm short. So then by the end of the year, I never hit that 1600 hour mark, but I do come close. Shouldn't the monthly billable hour goal be lower in certain months? Okay, this is a good one because I hear this a lot. I hear it all the time. In fact, you're not alone. That's why I developed a billable hour calculator tool. Took me a while, um, but gosh, it's so well worth it. It's available online for you to use for free. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I have to warn you in advance. There's no way to download it. Um, We do give it as an Excel file to download in our Bill Blower Bootcamp, but the free version um, is an online tool, kind of like those mortgage calculators that you can go and input your information in and it spits out the answer for you. You write it down and then go back to the page if you want to look at some different calculations the following month. But here's why I developed that calculator, because I would see this happen a lot, exactly what this person said. I'm missing my annual target every year, but I'm mostly hitting my monthly targets almost every month. Here's the thing. There are only so many work hours in any given month, and every month is different depending on the number of holidays, the number of PTO days, vacation days that you take. I would suggest that you stop looking at your billable hour goal on a monthly basis and think, oh, that's great. I hit 135 this month not realizing it's a month where you really should have hit 145 or 155 because there were more work hours available that month than there is going to be next month. Again, I'll include a link to that Bill Blower calculator in the show notes so that you can use it. Go into it, adjust the Bill Blower goal at the top. You can put input what your Bill Blower goal is, your average work hours per day, You input your holidays and vacation. I've already put some in there as a sample, but you can go in and change those. And it's going to show you how many total work hours are available in every month based on your calculations. And then it'll give you those numbers based on 
not working any overtime. So that's assuming no overtime. It's just base hours. Then there's also a column that you can input how many actual billable hours you put in each month. And the calculator is going to tell you how many billable hours you need to average each month if you want to hit that annual target. I think that'll be one of the actionable strategies for this episode. Plan your year, not just the month, and go use that billable hour calculator to help you do it. Again, it's free. The online version is free. Okay. I think we've got time for one more quick question um, because my goal is to keep all of these podcast episodes at 30 minutes or less each week. I promise not to go over unless I've got something really, really important and lengthy to share with you because I know you're busy. So this question came in from one of our blog readers um, who's also on our email mailing list. So they receive our Fast Track Friday tips. Oh, that should be another actionable strategy for this episode because Maybe you found this podcast through the podcast app and didn't know that we also have a very active paralegal blog where we put out weekly tips to help fast track paralegal careers. So you can visit, you can go visit the um, blog at paralegal-bootcamp.com forward slash paralegal hyphen blog. And you can search the blog for topics that you're most interested in, but there's, you know, there's just tons of them in there. We have other paralegals who do guest writing for us in addition to all of my blogs. So let's see the question. I found your billable hour calculator on your website. And when I put in my numbers, it looks like I'm averaging only about 70% of my day is spent on billable work. And then in parentheses, and I was shocked, exclamation point. Because it seems like I'm super busy all day, every day. What can I do to increase that number? What a great question. So we all have the occasional day, right? When we're jumping from project to project, we're working our butts off all day. And then we put in our time and at the end of the day, and we're like, wait, I only have five billable hours. I was super busy today. I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off. It's not like I was sitting around twiddling my thumbs or scrolling through my Facebook feed. So you're working, you're busy, and you're still coming up short at the end of the day. And then, of course, then you end up, you're short at the end of the month, too. After all of these years coaching about Bill Blowers, what I found is that it's not usually that you're not busy enough, it's that you're not capturing all of the billable work that you're doing on those busy days. In the Billable Hour Bootcamp, I go into uh, a lot of detail about ways that you could be losing your billable time, but I want to give you my, what I think is the top number one fix, uh, something that you can make today that'll get you some traction right away. I guess that's going to be our third actionable strategy, right? Just for today's episode. So this strategy is that you enter your time into the timekeeping system contemporaneously while you're doing the work, not waiting until the end of the day, not waiting until tomorrow morning to enter today's time or waiting till the end of the week, and most definitely not waiting until the end of the month. There are studies out there that say the longer you wait to input your billable time, the more time you lose. Even if you're tracking it during the day, maybe writing it down or using a timer on your computer. And that's because you're always going to forget a point one here and a point one there. Or as you're finalizing those time entries, you don't remember all of the detail of exactly what you did. So you just chop off some of your time. I call it ghosting your time. 
One study that came out several years ago said that if you wait until the end of the day to enter your time, you're going to be losing around 10% of your billable time for that day. So if we're looking at an eight-hour day, that's a 0.8, which doesn't sound like much, but if you add up a 0.8 every day, that's a lot of hours at the end of the month. So start entering your time while you're doing the work. For the person who sent in the question, let's say she's working an eight-hour day. And she says that only about 70% of her day ends up being entered as billable work. So that's 5.6. I know I just, these numbers, I can rattle them off literally off the top of my head. That's, I lived in six minute increments for 30 years, right out of college. The only jobs I ever had were uh, working at law firms with billable hour requirements. So yeah, I lived in, uh, even on the weekends, I literally spaced out my weekends in 0.6 or um, 0.1 increments. This is going to take me six minutes. This is going to take me a 0.3 at the grocery store, (laughs) literally. All right. So uh, 70% of an eight hour day is 5.6 billable hour day. If we're talking a 10% loss on that eight hour day by waiting a day or two to enter her time, add a 0.8 to that. And she's at 6.4. Again, almost In almost all situations, when I see numbers that low, numbers below 75% for the day, it's not that somebody's fluffing off and scrolling through Facebook, most of the time anyways, it's that they're ghosting their time. They're losing time. You know, It's almost like there's like a little crack in the window and the air is just coming out, right? There's, it's, you're losing it and you don't know where it's going. So that would be a 6.4, which means that's at about 80% right? She increased it by 10% just by entering her time contemporaneously with doing the work. So that's our final action strategy. I think we're up to four in this episode now. Um, Quite a few for one week show. I can't promise that you'll get this many in every show, but you will get at least one actionable strategy in each show. So the fourth and final one is enter your billable time immediately while you're doing the work instead of waiting until the end of the day. All right, that's a wrap for this week's Paralegals on Fire podcast show. Bye for now. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, hit the subscribe button in whatever platform you're listening. And please take a quick minute and leave a review of the podcast and share this episode with just one colleague or friend who you think would benefit from what we discussed today. Share the knowledge and the entire paralegal profession elevates. See you next week. Bye for now.